It's week 35 of 2018, and on TechNATO today, we have a lot of cloud news to get to, as well as one of my favorite stories, a hacker going to jail. And finally, some exciting news from CompTIA. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined by Don Bazette here on this beautiful, sunny Florida afternoon here in the summer. <laughs> it's, We're it's in the nice middle out. of our tropical depression or whatever the, this is outside, uh, which is the, the sad part of Florida in the in, in hurricane season, right? That's what we're in. Yeah, and it's the, the time of year where the, the steam comes off the sidewalk <laughs> after the rain, and it's, it's so nice. And uh, meanwhile, everyone up in, uh, you know, the Northeast, they're pulling out pumpkin spice things, and, and here we are dealing with this. But that's not what's important today. What's important <laughs> today is all the amazing news that we have to share with you. And let's get right to that, because we have quite a few articles to talk about. Uh, the first one here is uh, actually on NVIDIA's blog, uh, and it's about NVIDIA, believe it or not. Uh, NVIDIA GPU Cloud adds support for Microsoft Azure. And so, don't ask you just a few seconds ago, I uh, NVIDIA has their own cloud? Is this something that's competing? So th this is really interesting stuff because uh, starting a couple of years back, uh, if people wanted to do high-performance computing, HPC, they needed servers that had lots of processors. And so you were finding where AWS and some of the other cloud vendors were starting to roll out hardware that would have 8, 16, even 32 CPUs. But once you get past that number of 32 CPUs, things start to get really, really expensive and far less common. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really the greatest for getting performance. And then really, I mean, this really just happened the last handful of years. People started to realize you could do those same calculations on a graphics card. And graphics cards had way more cores than they had what were called CUDA cores. They might even have thousands of CUDA cores in one video card. And that you could do impressive mathematical calculations way faster. So all of a sudden, you had companies like NVIDIA that were practically built around video games all of a sudden becoming the hardware that was facilitating scientific research, um, big data processing, Bitcoin mining, you know, all this other stuff that had nothing to do with video games became a staple good for them. And at the time, NVIDIA had started setting up a cloud service where they would render video games on their end and just stream the video down to you. They had the NVIDIA Shield devices and stuff that did that. But now they play such a big role in high-performance computing that AWS teamed up to be able to leverage the NVIDIA GridX cards and, and be able to start to provide that same calculation functionality inside of AWS instances. And now Microsoft has jumped on that train as well and teamed up with NVIDIA. NVIDIA actually makes a whole special set of graphics cards now that are specifically designed for cloud deployments like this, and they've teamed up with the big vendors. So if you are someone who's been leveraging that technology, maybe you've held yourself to Amazon because they were the only ones that had that, now it's expanded out to Azure. And that's really important because more and more people are realizing how important it is to spread across more than one cloud provider. If you have everything in AWS, you run the risk of, you know, one, AWS could have a failure. Or two, there have been some high-profile incidents lately where maybe you violate a term of service and Amazon shuts your account down. Well, your whole business could be shut down if that were the case. So being spread across more than one cloud provider gives you a little insulation on that. So anyhow, NVIDIA, they've really been making out great on this whole cloud thing. And it's amazing because 10 years ago, if you talked to their CEO and said, do you think cloud is going to really help you as a video card company? 
The answer most likely would have been no. Cloud servers typically didn't have good video cards in them. It wasn't uh, uh, something they needed. But now we actually have these specific video cards built for this, the uh, NVIDIA Tesla V100, P100, the P40, these GPUs that are designed to go in those servers. You can fire up an instance or a virtual machine, have it attached, and really be in there doing calculations uh, that blow away what you can do on traditional CPUs. So really, really impressive technology. So, I mean, the, the big question here is, should I point my uh, my army of, of bots <laughs> at uh, computers with really good GPUs now to mine Bitcoin for me? Uh, you know, that's kind of what they do already yeah, when, okay. when they target desktops because people buy better video cards to play video games, and then they take that over. Uh, what I'm curious to see, and this is kind of a, a prediction that's being floated around out there by a few analysts, is that the next generation of video game consoles are going to be a lot different than what they are right now. You know, when you go and buy a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One, there's a, a fairly beefy video card inside of it. It's not the greatest, but it's it's fairly tuned. Uh, and that's why that hardware is so expensive. You know, a PlayStation 4 is, I think, $300, $350, something like that. Uh, Xbox One priced about the same. Mm-hmm. Well, they're saying in the future it makes more sense for the graphics cards to be in the cloud so they can be rendered across a farm based on demand. And then at the home, instead of having a full-blown thick client, you would have a thin client, a just a, almost like a Roku streaming device that connects back to that cloud and, and the video games are being rendered on the internet and just being streamed to your set. You could see that with a number of different technologies and we're almost getting back to the old mainframe days where people have the the dumb the dummy terminal on their yeah. end uh, that we're going to start seeing that soon because those video cards can be used far more effectively in the cloud. Yeah, and we have fast enough connections now to support that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Going back to cryptocurrency, though, I did learn this week at a, at a trivia night that I did that uh, the singer, I don't know, singer, uh, Akon has just released his own uh, cryptocurrency, and it's called Acoin. Acoin? I just, I'm just so excited about the name of that that I think I need to get well, some. You know, my favorite cryptocurrency got shut down thanks to a uh, DMCA request, uh, and it was Coinye. Do, wow. do you recall that one? I do. I, I, uh, I heard and, about that. And old Kanye West didn't uh, didn't care for that, but Kanye, I yeah. don't see the resemblance at all. You know, if you can't base a currency off of the uh, wit and lyricism of Kanye West, I don't know what you can. Yeah, it's uh, Doge, I guess. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to our next article. This is over on uh, TechCrunch. Uh, VMware pulls AWS's relational database service into the data center. So I got confused when I first read this headline thinking that they're pulling something out of AWS, but it means that they're actually pulling it into AWS, right? Right. So uh, RDS is hosted inside of AWS, and obviously you can make it redundant. You can put it in different regions, in different availability zones. In fact, it does that by default. Uh, so you know, RDS is really stable, really awesome, but it's entirely in the cloud, right? So imagine if you were uh, uh, like a, a retail store or a grocery store, and you've got 30 cash registers up at the front uh, you know, for the customers to check out. Well, every time you scan an item, that cash register has to do a lookup against the database. If it's all the way up in AWS's cloud, then you're reaching out over the internet to do that. Wouldn't it be nice to have that same data on-premises as well? Well, Amazon hasn't officially supported that in the past. There were ways to do it, but it was kind of up to you. They wanted the RDS instance to be fully managed and hosted in the AWS data centers. Well, 
VMware has really been making huge strides this year. We've we've reported on it a few times. You know, they've had several articles come out about how uh, they are working to create better hybrid clouds for people, where you can have a deployment in AWS. And then you run vSphere locally, and you're able to move resources back and forth between the two as if they were the same environment. And so now you can have an RDS instance in AWS, and you can sync down a copy in, in, in uh, real time, uh, you know, replicate that down. So now you've got a copy locally, and all those cache registers aren't having to reach out across the internet to do a checkout. And if you lose your internet connection, you're still able to process cash registers, uh, checkouts, and generate receipts and all of that. So it uh, it really does expand that functionality. They've been doing that in other areas too with uh, EC2 instances, making it where you can move those back and forth between on-prem and the cloud. And we're starting to see that with more and more AWS services. Uh, Microsoft had already made a big push into this. Amazon is just now really getting uh, getting up to speed on that and setting in the environment for that hybrid cloud we're seeing more and more often. Now, how does this work in, maybe not in the grocery store example, but something where it's a more uh, dynamic uh, database that's changing a lot? So if the prices of those groceries were changing all the time, is it doing uh, just a, a, a request based on a certain amount of time, like every minute it's going to look for changes, or do you set that? It depends. Uh, it, it, you, you set that, okay. and it depends on what you're trying to achieve. You can have them operate in lockstep. Uh, where you're doing transaction log shipping and a transaction is not considered posted until both databases confirm it. So the on-premises database would have to confirm it and the remote database would have to confirm it. But when you do that, it slows your transactions down, right? So if speed is of the essence, that's not what you want. And in that scenario, you would switch to more of a replication model where your change occurs on-premises first and then in time replicates up to the cloud. But now your databases aren't in sync and so if there's ever a failure or an outage, you could potentially lose some data. That's a decision you have to make in your database design. Yeah. But, uh, but you can... product is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can put them in lockstep, though, if, if that's what you really want. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's stick with some Amazon news here. This coming uh, directly from the horse's mouth over on the AWS blog on Amazon site. Uh, Amazon Light Sale announces 50% price drop and two new instance sizes. That sounds like a pretty good deal for, for customers. Yeah, you know, Lightsail, if you're not familiar with that one, it launched a few years ago. And what it does is it provides a super simplified experience with AWS. So AWS has a number of components inside of it, like EC2 and Route 53, RDS, S3, all these different components. For a lot of people out there, it's too confusing. There's a lot of developers that just want to focus on writing their software and they don't really care about what's going on behind the scenes in the cloud. Just make my software run. And so if you're like that, you kind of don't want to have to deal with all those individual components, LightSail makes it where you can do that. For example, if I needed to spin up a WordPress server, well, in regular AWS, I would have to go into Route 53 and create my DNS zones and map that, uh, point it to an instance. I'd have to bring up an instance. I'd have to bring up a database server and you know, do all these things to get that set up to bring up a WordPress server. But in LightSail, I go to the little button and I tell it I want a WordPress site and it spins up the whole environment for me and I don't have to worry about it. So it's a completely managed system. Uh, it gets borderline close to software as a service, but it is technically still platform as a service. Uh, they've added some new instant sizes to it. So they can do 16 gigs of RAM and now 32 gigs of RAM as well. And they sliced the prices in half. I'm always amazed with that. As Amazon grows, they'll reduce their prices to reflect you know, the, 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 the economies of scale. They don't have to do that. They could leave the prices the way they were and make more money, but for whatever reason... 
uh, I guess, customer goodwill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they they, uh, they cut the prices, and uh, this is a great chance to look at it. If you haven't messed with Amazon Light Sale, it's, it's pretty slick. Definitely check it out. Sounds good. Well, we've got a lot of cloud news today, and it's not just uh, with Amazon. Our next story uh, is over on TechCrunch, and it's actually uh, about the Google Cloud. Uh, well, Google's investment in cloud, I should say. Uh, Google takes a step back from running the Kubernetes development infrastructure. So um, it sounds like they're kind of giving back or give, giving control back to the community uh, for from the project that they were kind of helping start up. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, Kubernetes is open source. Uh, but what a lot of people don't realize is that most open source projects that are successful have some kind of commercial backing behind them. Uh, you'll find a lot of them where they're effectively owned by Oracle or Red Hat or somebody like that. Uh, you know, VirtualBox or MySQL. MySQL is an open source database. A lot of people love it, but it's, it's effectively owned by Oracle and Oracle makes the decisions on it. That's how Kubernetes was becoming with Google. Google was really calling a lot of the shots. And so there were people out there that were starting to express some concern over it, especially other vendors like uh, Microsoft with Azure and Windows Server 2019. They're adopting Kubernetes support. Well, what Google did is they said they want to uh, give more of that responsibility over to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation or the CNCF. Uh, and to help with that, They've given the CNCF $9 million in Google Cloud credits so that the foundation can go and deploy and develop on top of Google Cloud. The idea there being that it's not Google calling the shots that the, the CNCF is, but since they're working in the Google environment, obviously they're going to support that better than anybody else. So that, that helps protect Google's needs, but also helps to protect the... Um, uh, reputation, uh, integrity, or, or whatever the CNCF mm -hmm. that you know they're not yeah. just like uh, only considering Google's best interests and not not the end user. So good to good to see that handoff occurring. Yeah, and the article even mentions that uh, the CNCF in includes a wide range of members, including uh, Alibaba Cloud, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, IBM Cloud, Oracle, SAP, and VMware. So really, all the big uh, players there. So uh, it's good to see this. That, like I said, it it might be a uh, a Google first approach, but uh, but everything else will still probably um, be okay working with them. So, um, all right, let's switch uh, switch gears now a little bit to some Microsoft stuff and Don's favorite topic, AI. <laughs> uh, this one over on Engadget, uh, Microsoft OneDrive will use AI to make searchable video transcripts and. From what you were saying earlier, you're you're a little skeptical. Yeah, you know, uh, this is a problem that I've had. Uh, I have this problem with Dropbox and, and any other kind of file storage, or, or heck, even your local computer. Uh, if I need to search and find a document, most operating systems and most search engines now have gotten where they can index PDFs and Word documents and text files. So you're not just searching for a file name, but you're searching for the content inside of the file. That's great. Makes it easy to find things. Unless you're searching for a video or uh, audio recording. Maybe I, I know I have a voicemail that's recorded as a WAV file somewhere on my hard drive, but I can't search and find it based on something I talked about in that WAV file, right? Because it's, it's multimedia. So what Microsoft is doing is they're saying, look, we've invested all this money into Cortana and speech recognition and, and all of that. Why not make it when we can have some artificial intelligence run, uh, in other words, Cortana, uh, and go in there and index these videos and index these audio files and make it searchable, right? Which sounds pretty good, but uh, there are two problems with this uh, Peter and I were joking about before the show. Um, the main problem uh, for, for a lot of people is going to be privacy, 
right? That now your videos and all that are getting indexed. That index data has to be stored somewhere. And that index data is made up of your videos and your audio. So, uh, you know, you may or may not want that. The other problem is a little more comical to me, which is, uh, uh, what did I say? If, if this is twice as good as Cortana, yeah. then it's total crap. <laughs> and so we'll have to see how effective it is. The transcripts that I've seen um, from Skype for Business, from Cortana, just understanding me to all sorts of stuff, it's just not that great. So I don't know how good these transcripts will be. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that that in my job, I'm I'm constantly seeing the transcripts from YouTube that they generate automatically um, based on on the AI uh, and what they're assuming uh, that you're saying, and we have to go in there and fix them all the time. But uh, on the flip side, uh, with IT Pro TV, we pay to have the courses uh, transcribed professionally, and to have that ability to go and search within a course by a specific keyword you're looking for is amazing. So if they can figure this out, it will be amazing. Right. Like the 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 idea is amazing, but the execution, it we're gonna have to wait and see if it's any better than than what exists out. Yeah, there. and and we we use humans to do that, right? So it's actual humans that are transcribing those episodes because that's that's kind of the only thing that really works. That the regular computer-based transcription is just not there. It, it's getting closer, but I don't know. I. I used Dragon Naturally Speaking 18 years ago, mm. and if you use it today, it really doesn't seem to be any better. I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not using the right words or whatever, but it just doesn't seem to be that much much better. Well, and in our industry, too, it's the jargon. You know, there, there's acronyms, acronyms that you yeah. use all the time and, and product names that it's just not going to get uh, organically. So I, I do use a lot of acronyms, the TTFN and sure. uh, ROFL. Sure. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> IDG. Well, okay. Um, I, I, I will say, though, that on the photo side, uh, like I use Amazon Photos for my, my personal photo storage. And uh, they've got the ability in the app. And I know a few of the other um, similar products have this where you can go in and say, show me pictures of a dog. And it'll bring up all your photos of a dog that it's gone in and actually looked at the image. And, and it, it's funny sometimes where you say, I want to show me pictures of a bicycle. And you'll find things and you go, why is that? in? Oh, it's got two circles next to each other. It thinks those are wheels uh. or, or something like that. So um, that technology has been great uh, for me as well. But uh, if you can do that on the video side, I'd, I'd be really excited. But... I'm not uh, holding my breath yet that it's going to work, but we'll find out. Uh, speaking of things that don't work, uh, let's get to malware, uh, the threats of the week. Uh, this coming from ThreatPost.com. Busy Gasper malware packs a simple but potent punch. So who is naming these these malware? You know, things? so typically it's whoever discovers the malware names it, <laughs> but they usually don't just make it up from nothing. They... As they reverse engineer the malware and they start to do attribution, right? They look at the code. There's usually something in the malware that gives them that name. Uh, and so they, they find it that way and, and name it. Uh, but other times, like with the Spectre and Meltdown, they just made those up. Yeah. So, But it's whoever discovers it. It's kind of like naming a dinosaur, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, so what's this one all about? So in this case, uh, a team of researchers found the busy Gasper malware, which is actually an Android malware. So it's on Android phones. Uh, and what was interesting here was that this malware, uh, as far as the, the way that it infected a machine, was actually pretty low-tech, right? Uh, and it just had a few advanced features that they hadn't really seen before. Things like uh, it used IRC for its command and control, which a lot of Android malware doesn't use. That was kind of unusual to see it here. But also, it did an 
overlay on the screen that you know you wouldn't see, but made it where when you tapped, it was able to record coordinates so that it would understand that you were tapping on the phone. And it also tracked the gyro sensors so that it would know if the phone was moving or if it was stationary. And if it was moving, it would stop some of the activities that it was doing until it was stationary again. You know, a lot of these things you, you read about that are, are doing Bitcoin mining and so on, on a phone, it'll make the phone hot. And so if the phone is at rest, it's likely laying on a table somewhere. So it's not a big deal if the phone is hot. But if it's in somebody's pocket and moving around, they'll know the phone is hot. And so this malware was smart enough to be able to detect that and, and rein in what it was doing. So those were all neat things that this was, was kind of showing like a next level of malware. But it is important that we put a little uh, bit of perspective on this. The, uh, the infection size for this one was 10. Uh, 10 whole phones. They found so far to date, 10 whole phones that have been infected by this malware. Uh, it looks like the way that it's been installed is manual. In other words, somebody had physical access to the phone and installed it. So there haven't been any random infections in the wild. This isn't a malware you need to worry about getting on your phone. Uh, odds are it's not going to happen. Uh, four of the, the 10 infections, they were able to trace back to people who lived in Russia. So we don't even know if it's over here in the U.S. yet. Probably not. Uh, so this uh, does appear to be a Eastern European or Western Asian uh, infection base of 10. But the key takeaway here is not so much how many people have been affected, but just the things that this malware is capable of doing. That, uh, you know, the, the key and touch logging that it can do, uh, the fact that it can use IRC, it can exfiltrate data very easily. It listens out for text messages for certain codes that it can then take action on and suppress those text messages so you don't even see them come in. So it, it's pretty intelligent. It's very well uh, thought out. And that's what uh, got it on ThreatPost radar. So if you get bored, swing by the ThreatPost website and read up on it. They outline some of the different things that it can do. And they have a more detailed breakdown also uh, on basically this new busy Gasper malware. Yeah, I know the thing you were talking about with the heat is so you wouldn't notice it. But, you know, I really think that's uh, that's nice of them as well to do that. I mean, if if someone wanted to put malware on, on my phone that just worked while it was on my nightstand, you know, at night I'm not using it. Got the bandwidth there. Hey, got the computing power. Share and share alike, right? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's appreciated. I I would think twice before deleting it off my phone. But anyway, <laughs> so that, that that's a good one. Uh, all right, I I always love the news about um, hackers actually getting caught. And as we talk about so many things like this, where we have no idea where they came from. So um, and this week, Jennifer Lawrence was arrested. This, yep, and uh, <laughs> hacking herself. Uh, no, the uh, a hacker was sentenced to prison for a role in Jennifer Lawrence nude photo theft. And this is goes back to the uh, iCloud stuff, uh, like three, four years ago, I think it was at this point. And this is on uh, on the Guardian.com on their website. But uh, the, the hacker was sentenced to just a, a short eight months in prison and then some probationary period after that, which, I don't know, it seems like uh, seems like that's getting off a little little light for uh, for what it is. That, not just hacking, but the nature of, of the sensitive information stolen. Yeah, you know, this is something that uh, is showing how our legal system is still trying to evolve to, to take into account e-crime. E-crime is not quite being handled the right way. Uh, if you think about what was done, so this gentleman, he stole personal data from a number of, of celebrities and other people. You're going with John. Uh, and then uh, he's, well, I, I guess I, I just... Uh, <laughs> this fine, upstanding citizen. <laughs> well, I, I guess, yeah, maybe not so much. So this dude, right? <laughs> this jerk over here, <laughs> he stole yeah. all this stuff. He threw it out on the internet, and once it's out there, there's no taking it back, right? 
So if you think about the damage that he did to to these people, it's like irreversible damage. You can't undo what was done. And he got eight months of jail time or nine months. How long was it? Uh, uh, eight, eight months. Eight months. So eight months of jail time. I don't know. You know, it, it, the the punishment should, should suit the crime. Uh, different countries have different punishments on this one. Ours is still obviously evolving. Uh, now, he is just one of four people who were implicated in all of this. So we'll see how the others get sentenced. Maybe he had some minor role, but it does say he he did over, I think it was over 240 accounts that he was accused of accessing um, and pulling information from. So uh, that's a lot of counts to only get eight months. Yeah, um, but I think the, the the silver lining here is knowing that uh, people typically come out of the, uh, the criminal justice system rehabilitated, uh, <laughs> ready to just become uh, outstanding citizens, outstanding, yeah, members of society, and and uh, and move on. So uh, he will not become a super criminal uh, you while know, he's in prison. Does it say was it a felony or a misdemeanor what he did? Uh, that's I, a great question. I didn't. I don't recall seeing that when I read At through the, the article. Bottom, it says the three other hackers have already been sentenced to terms between nine months and eighteen months, uh, but I don't know where it lists the. Actual crime. There's federal yeah, guidelines say. for the sentencing. Yeah, so it's like wire fraud or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. These, uh, like you said, how it's still evolving. They sometimes they'll get you for a. You're like, why is this mail fraud or why is this? But it it's just what they're able to uh, um, to get it to stand up as. So yeah, that's interesting. I'm not I'm not sure specifically what uh, what the law in question was, but yeah, uh, we've got another one here that is. Uh, Another not so happy story, but uh, it it comes with a good lesson, so that's why we wanted to uh, to share it with you. This one is over on Gizmodo. I'm not going to read the headline verbatim, but uh, <laughs> I'll let those of you that are are watching the podcast read it, and those of you that are just listening, uh, you're welcome to go and and Google it for yourself. But uh, anti-Semitic vandalism uh, basically changed the name of New York City on Snapchat, City Bike, and more. And the reason this is telling is. The headline of this article is saying it changed it on Snapchat. It changed it on CityBike, but that's not actually where the change was made, and that and that's kind of where this gets interesting. This is a big challenge that uh, that companies have these days. Is that very few companies offer a product where they offer a hundred percent of the services that go together to make that product. Uh, and this is an example where Snapchat has a mapping feature, but instead of reinventing the wheel and creating their own mapping, they just reached out and used a third-party vendor. Now. That third-party vendor was, uh, where was the name of that? Mapbox. So they used Mapbox, and Mapbox in turn used OpenStreetMap. Now, OpenStreetMap is a open or crowdsourced mapping system that's designed to generate maps, and a lot of open-source projects use it because it's, well, it's it's open versus using Google Maps where you're held to all sorts of licensing terms. Yeah, or and Apple and so Maps where it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, that. Another option. How is Apple Maps not fixed this uh, far in? Like, how, how well, is this, Apple... That shows why people go outside and use a third party because they said, well, we could go Apple's way and make our own map in yeah. Snapchat, and it could be terrible. And we know how that'll turn out. <laughs> I mean, with the billions of dollars they have sitting there in Irish bank accounts, it seems like they could fix Apple Maps and make it not suck, but it is terrible, yeah. uh, even even today. But anyhow, so the, the, the moral of the story is that open source data is always going to be subject to attack. It just doesn't have the, the industry behind it like a private mapping system would. And Mapbox actually had a system in place to catch when vandalism like this occurred and get in there and, and stop it. In this case, it was red flagged for human review but it just didn't get reviewed in time. 
And by that point, it had made it to their partners, which included Snapchat and City Bike and others. And so all of a sudden, depending on what level of Zoom you were at, New York had a slightly different name, which was pretty inappropriate uh, and certainly not something that Snapchat wanted. They came out and and uh, issued an apology and said it, it's been fixed. They're working with Mapbox to make sure it doesn't happen again. For the rest of us, though, what this should be is like a lesson that if your company has a public-facing website, you could be doing everything in the world to defend that website and protect it from attack. But if you're rendering elements on your site that are coming from some third party, those can be compromised. And all of a sudden, you can end up with a defaced website like you're seeing with Snapchat. And it's not their fault, but they're the ones who take the PR hit. Just like Peter pointed out, it didn't say... Mapbox gets compromised. No one, no one clicks on that article if it says that because you don't know who those are. That's but exactly you right. Know City Bike, you know, Snapchat. Snapchat, yeah. Although I don't, uh, who uses Snapchat still? But still, you know, the kids, <laughs> the kids, the kids use it, um, and they're the impressionable ones that that shouldn't. We don't, we don't want knowing these things. But uh, it, it kind of makes me wonder why on OpenStreetMap they said. Well, let's leave this part open because these city names change all the time. Yeah, especially right? New York, yeah, New like York, one of the biggest yeah. cities in the world. Yeah, that, that maybe it should be one that has to go through some sort of approval process before <laughs> a city name uh, completely changes. But uh, so may, maybe there'll be some changes at their end as well. But uh, but something to keep in mind. I know we've talked too in the past about situations where you have a, a third party uh, component on your website, like um, a shopping cart or a, a social media feature, and if that's hacked. You know, it's kind of a backdoor into your site as well. So Social media features, right? So there's a lot of sites that do the embedded Twitter feed, right? Here's the current tweets about us. And sometimes those tweets aren't very nice. Yeah. And, and so you end up with some kind of crazy tweet that just happened to mention your company name, and now it's right there on your homepage. So we do have to be careful about that. Don't be too trusting of third-party elements. Yeah. All right, well, we normally end uh, with a uh, an article that makes you kind of say, what? Well, this week, the article will more make you say, what? <laughs> I think, which is a different kind of a whole different uh, reaction. Tone. Yeah, yeah. So it's more exciting as opposed to uh, shocking and crazy. Uh, this one over on CompTIA.org, uh, on CompTIA's official uh, blog and website here, their press release, CompTIA names IT Pro TV official video training partner. I, I've heard of them. So what... Does that actually mean as an official video training partner, Don? So, you know, CompTIA has been evolving a lot of their training and uh, and bringing some things in-house. You know, they, they started offering uh, practice exams a few years ago. They're starting to offer their own official courseware now. And they need official video to go along with the courses. And so they uh, they selected this this startup out of Gainesville called IT Pro TV. Again, going uh, with a third party, I, I yeah. would... You yeah, know, you just never know what's going to be in those know. videos, right? But uh, but yeah, basically, you know, they they needed reliable certification training, and we are proud to be that that company that got selected. So we're really excited about this news here. Uh, this all just announced. Was it on Monday, Tuesday? Tuesday, uh, I think. Yeah, I think Tuesday yeah. is so, when the release went out. So just uh, just two days ago, very hot, hot off the presses type news. Uh, but we are really excited about it. Expert TV has always had great CompTIA training available in our library. We've worked with them for years, and it's uh, it's been a great relationship. So to be the official video partner for them, uh, and that's not not a official, it's the official video yeah. training partner, uh, that uh, it's just an amazing opportunity. And you know, it goes back to the whole, if you're looking to get a CompTIA certification, IT Pro TV is a great resource. Definitely check us out. Yeah, and I think from the, the 
uh, viewer's perspective too, that means that they know what they're getting obviously is um, the latest and greatest, uh, you know, approved content. But um, it, it also means that we'll be able to put out that content uh, very quickly because we'll know ahead of time when something new is coming out and uh, we'll be able to say, hey, that, that new, uh, you know, uh, objective has changed and here's the video for it. It's not like we have to go and then uh, film that content then. So it's, it's pretty exciting and, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping for big things coming from that. I know you're excited as well. Uh, speaking of other big things coming uh, from IT Pro TV, we've got some more webinars coming up. Uh, we had a, a couple great webinars last month, um, DDoS and things like that. Um, but now uh, we've got the DOS. I can't, I'm always thinking I'm going to say that wrong, but that's desktop as a service. Uh, I'm just not as, as familiar with that, which is why I should really attend this webinar and learn about DOS and the rumors and realities and why desktop as a service is uh, something great and coming forward. And that's going to be Ronnie. And I believe Wes is going to be hosting that uh, Thursday, September 13th. And then uh, the top five DevOps blunders um, from a guy who has done a lot of DevOps blunders, Don Pizzette. Oh, and Justin will be there as well. We'll um, blunder together. Showing him how to fix said blunders. Uh, that's on Thursday, September 20th. Uh, you can jump over here to itpro.tv slash webinars and, uh, and go ahead and register for those. And, and Don, if you scroll down there on that page, you can actually see all of our past webinars as well. They're there on demand. So you can go ahead and watch if you missed uh, Hybrid Cloud, uh, DDoS, GDPR, any of those kinds of things. Uh, we're going to go ahead and archive all of those there for you to enjoy. Uh, so check that out, itpro.tv slash webinars. And also, if you want to find out more about ITPro.tv, uh, head over to the Technado page we recently added at go.itpro.tv slash Technado. Got a 30% off code there, and you can find out more about team pricing. Uh, if you are, are part of a uh, IT team, there's some special features that you can get as well. And that 30% off is for the life of your subscription. So not just the first month or the first year, that's for as long as you keep that active. So pretty exciting stuff. So, Don, anything else to add before we uh, end today? No, definitely check out the DevOps Blunders one. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, uh, I I wrote most of the presentation, and I shared it with Justin. Now, I'm a sysadmin. He's a developer, and he started looking over my my top five, and he said, man, I've made all these mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Uh, it'll definitely be a good time. Check it out. Totally free of charge, too. Just uh, yep. jump over to the site, register, and you'll be in there. Yeah, the mistakes often make for the best learning opportunities. And that's that's honestly what I love about the show is when we make a mistake and we keep that in because it's the same mistake that you would make at home. And so you want to see how we actually fix that. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. And that's going to do it for us here at Technado. And we will see you next week. 